0: Good morning, I'm Allison Michaels from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, February 17th. In today's news, the Texas electrical grid got crushed this week because its operators didn't see the need to prepare for cold weather. And a congressman sues Trump and Giuliani, accusing them of inciting the January 6th Capitol riot. But first, the big idea. Congressional Democrats renewed their focus Tuesday on passing President Biden's $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief bill. The Post's Erica Werner reports that with former President Donald Trump's impeachment trial out of the way in the Senate, Democrats are preparing to push the coronavirus legislation through a few final procedural hoops. The House is expected to vote on the legislation next week. From there, it would go to the Senate. Biden participated in a CNN town hall event in Wisconsin on Tuesday night to discuss the coronavirus and the economy. He used the opportunity to promote his relief plan, which includes a new round of $1,400 stimulus checks, plus hundreds of billions of dollars for schools, for city and state governments, for coronavirus testing, and for vaccine manufacturing and distribution. The proposal would also increase emergency federal unemployment benefits from $300 a week to $400 a week and extend them into the fall. The benefits right now are set to expire March 14th. Despite divisions within the House Democratic Caucus, Democrats have largely unified behind the legislation. Nine House committees passed their individual portions of the bill last week. They fought back GOP attempts to alter it with dozens of amendments targeting everything from abortion to the Keystone XL pipeline. Democrats defeated all the GOP amendments except for one, a relatively minor measure in the Agricultural Committee aimed at compensating farmers affected by some storms last year. Republicans repeatedly said they were frustrated that their views weren't being considered as Democrats pushed the legislation forward without GOP support. Democrats, though, defended their approach, saying they need to act quickly to inject more money into the healthcare system and to stabilize the economy. Biden's outreach to Republicans on the plan has been limited, despite his campaign's promises of unity and bipartisanship. He did meet with a group of 10 Senate Republicans in early February, but he ultimately described their $618 billion counterproposal as inadequate. Biden's indicated that he's prepared to move forward without Republicans. Congressional Democrats are advancing the legislation under special budgetary rules that allow it to pass the Senate with a simple majority. That's instead of the 60 votes normally required. Essentially, this means that Republican votes aren't exactly necessary. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki has pointed to the support from GOP governors and mayors, as well as polling showing widespread support for the plan among members of both parties — even if Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and congressional Republicans are not on board. House passage of this legislation looks likely, even though some more moderate Democratic members had hoped to move first on a standalone bill with funding just for vaccines. Bigger fights, though, await this legislation once it heads into the Senate. There, Democrats can't afford to lose a single vote. And that's because of the chamber's 50-50 divide between Republicans and Democrats. Democrats have the majority because Vice President Harris can break ties. Two moderate Democrats in the Senate, Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, have indicated that they oppose increasing the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. Right now, that's part of the legislation. Biden has suggested that the minimum wage increase may not make it into the very final bill. If the Senate strips out the minimum wage increase and sends the legislation back to the House without it, liberals in the House would then face a decision about whether to support the package anyway. Congress has already devoted about $4 trillion to fighting the coronavirus pandemic, including $900 billion in December. Many Republicans question the need for $2 trillion in additional spending. In a letter to Senate leaders on Monday, the top Republicans on multiple Senate committees slammed what they called a completely partisan process. And that's the big idea. Here are two other stories that should be on your radar. Number one. When it gets really cold, it can be hard to produce electricity. Customers in Texas and neighboring states are finding this out this week. But the thing is, it's not impossible. Operators in Alaska, Canada, Maine, Norway, and even Siberia do it all the time. The Post's Will England reports that what has sent Texas reeling is not an engineering problem, and it's not the frozen wind turbines blamed by prominent Republicans. It's a financial structure for power generation that offers no incentives to power plant operators to actually prepare for winter. In the name of deregulation and free markets, critics say Texas has created an electric grid that puts an emphasis on cheap prices over reliable service. Meanwhile, four million Texas households have been without power. One utility company, Gritty, which sells power at wholesale rates to retail customers without locking in a price in advance, told its patrons on Tuesday to find another provider before they get socked with tremendous bills. The widespread failure in Texas, and to a lesser extent in Oklahoma and Louisiana in the face of this extreme winter cold, shines a light on what some see as the derelict state of America's power infrastructure. The immediate question facing the Texas power sector is whether its participants are willing to pay for the sort of winterization measures that are common farther north, even if they're doing it for a a once-in-a-decade spell of weather. Texas Governor Greg Abbott called Tuesday for reform of the state's electrical grid operator. They're called the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT. Abbott said he would work with the state legislature to find ways to ensure that Texas never experiences power outages like this again. The Republican Speaker of the Texas House announced immediate hearings into what went wrong. Fossil fuel groups and their Republican allies blamed the power failures on frozen wind turbines and warned against the supposed dangers of alternative power sources. Some turbines did in fact freeze, though Greenland and other northern outposts are able to keep theirs going throughout the winter. But wind accounts for just 10% of the power in Texas generated during the winter, and the major loss of power to the grid was caused by shutdowns of thermal power plants, primarily those relying on natural gas. In single-digit temperatures, pipelines froze up because there was some moisture in that gas. Pumps slowed, diesel engines to power the pumps refused to start. One power plant after another went offline. Even a reactor at one of the state's two nuclear plants went dark, hobbled by frozen equipment. Texas is unique among the states in having a grid that's all its own. It's almost entirely cut off from the rest of the country. And that's prevented Texas from importing much electricity as its power plants went down. But the cold is so widespread across the heart of the nation that really no one, no other state, has any electricity to spare anyway. Number two. The chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee on Tuesday filed a federal lawsuit accusing former President Donald Trump, lawyer Rudy Giuliani, and two extremist groups of illegally conspiring to intimidate and block the certification of the 2020 election. The Post's Spencer Shue reports that Representative Benny Thompson, a Democrat from Mississippi, alleged in federal court that Trump's and Giuliani's false claims that the election was stolen fomented a raid. That raid, according to the suit, violated the Ku Klux Klan Act, an 1871 law enacted after the Civil War to bar violent interference in Congress's constitutional duties. The lawsuit alleges that Trump, Giuliani, and members of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys sought to harass and impede lawmakers. It alleges that they temporarily succeeded, forcing Thompson and others to wear gas masks and take cover on the House gallery floor before being evacuated. Thompson said in a statement that Trump's gleeful support of violent white supremacists instigated the assault, gravely endangered lawmakers, and encouraged future authoritarianism. Trump was acquitted Saturday in his second impeachment trial as 57 senators, seven Republicans, and all 50 Democrats voted to convict him of inciting the mob's attack. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell voted for acquittal, but said afterward that there was no question that President Trump is practically and morally responsible. McConnell also said Trump was not immune from civil liability for the event. That event left five dead, it resulted in 139 assaults on police officers, and it obstructed the electoral vote certification of President-elect Joe Biden's victory. The Proud Boys leader called the lawsuit frivolous and doubted it would be allowed to proceed in federal court. He said he had nothing to do with the breach. Representative Hank Johnson, a Democrat from Georgia, and Representative Bonnie Watson-Coleman, a Democrat from New Jersey, are also expected to join the suit. The lawsuit tests rarely litigated and long-unvisited areas of the law. That 1871 law I mentioned was requested and signed during Reconstruction by President Ulysses S. Grant, who invoked it that October to suppress violence in the South. The law helped break the power of the Klan and other groups terrorizing Black voters, but it has not been used as Tuesday's lawsuit contemplates in modern times. Plus, the Supreme Court has also ruled that presidents enjoy absolute immunity for actions undertaken in their official capacity. That's a term that courts have interpreted pretty generously. Thompson's attorneys argue that directing an assault on a co-equal branch of government in no way qualifies as protecting and defending the U.S. Constitution. The suit seeks compensatory and punitive damages for any plaintiffs who join it and were harmed in the assault, as well as attorney's fees. This means a guilty verdict could represent not only a judicial judgment against Trump's actions, but also a financial sting. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, February 17th. I'm Allison Michaels. Thanks so much for listening.